All right. Hello, everyone. Welcome to episode 28 of the Making Noise podcast. My name is Adam Kanaan, and I am your host. This episode today features musicologist Stephen Triger. Stephen is the first musicologist to be featured on the podcast, which is incredibly exciting. I met Stephen after he reached out to me to be on his podcast, The Composer Chronicles. Um, after having the opportunity to speak with him there, which was a fantastic and fun conversation. He is a really great host. Uh, I hope you all get the chance to go check out that episode and also follow his podcast. Um, we, we had such a great dynamic together. I really enjoyed talking with him. And not only that, after we finished the call, we kept talking for maybe another hour and a half, I think. It wasn't even for the podcast. We were just chatting, and um, and I enjoyed the conversation so much. And and we we talked a lot about musicology that I thought it would be really interesting to have him on the podcast. So Stephen and I talked quite a bit about the career and expectations of a musicologist while you're in college, and how that didn't work well for him, and he wanted to find his own path. Um, we talk about biographies and what is a uh, what he considers to be a good biography. Um, we talk a lot about Tchaikovsky, the autobiography by his brother. And, um, you know, Tchaikovsky speaks like five languages, apparently. I didn't know that. Um, we talk about, we have this really fascinating conversation about bread and also the, the origins of phrases like breadwinner or uh, breaking bread. And uh, that, was, that was really fascinating, honestly. Uh, we talk about all kinds of other interesting things, too, like the issues of censorship, particularly in, in the field of classical music, for example, um, especially when the the thing at hand that is being considered for censorship is controversial. Um, we also talk about opera and how using different languages for an opera that was written in a specific language. Uh, both Stephen and I agree that we are not fans of that. Yeah, this this was a really fun conversation. I'm really excited to have Stephen on here, and uh, I hope you all get a chance to check out the episode um, and follow his podcast. I believe that's everything. So uh, thank you all so much for listening and following the podcast. Uh, please like, subscribe, follow on the platform that you use, and uh, yeah, let's go make some noise. My name is Adam Canal, and I am a collaborative composer. Join me in the search for a career in classical music. This is the Making Noise podcast. Yeah, Mr. Mr. Tri Tri is it Trigar or is it Traeger? What is Trigar? Tri Trigar. Yeah. Yeah. It said exactly how it looks. <laughs> yeah, yeah. My I can't tell you how many times that people have like botched up my name just it's like it's literally it literally is pronounced how it looks yeah try gar which uh, i don't know the origin of that name uh i've been told that it's polish mm. but it doesn't sound like any polish name i've ever heard uh but yeah there's there's no ski in there there's no like like yeah. or whatever or like yeah yeah which it's just funny because my mother's maiden name is Zakreski, which uh -huh. is 100 percent polish it sounds polish and we know that they were polish my 
like every time I try to go and do any personal research on the the last name Trigar, it always says that it's Polish. And for some reason, I don't believe them. <laughs> I just don't believe them. <laughs> and uh, my my dad was never as invested into his like family heritage as much as my mom was. Mm-hmm. And my, like my mom, when I was a kid, my mom would go and she would go to the public library and she would research like the the records in the Scranton um, public library to find uh, her great her grandparents their the entrance into the city and like them registering with the city for certain things and postal addresses and all that uh, and she was so super invested into it but the most i know about my dad's side of the family was that my my great grandfather is the last one of his family to be 100 native american mm-hmm. um and then I think that my dad said that we have some Welsh and some Polish on that side, which I don't know. I digress. Hmm. That's kind of, that's kind of interesting to hear though. Cause like, I know, I imagine the Welsh were as well. I don't, I, I don't know European history very well outside of when it's connected to music, <laughs> but um, <laughs> Welsh, well, the Irish, weren't the Irish considered like the, like, native people of united kingdom or in a way i guess uh, yeah there were there were definitely i uh, the one the uk was broken down much differently than than it looks today i mean there ireland was much more spread out i mean they were the irish their irish culture was based on 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 tribes um and um i don't know if tribes is the right word but there, there were there were def- there were groups there were there were more of like this is a, a very small group of people a family and the family was in charge of one specific area um mm-hmm. kind of like a kind of like a, a lordship but much more subdued um and then the English were kind of in the similar boat, but um, I think it, I think it was a little bit more um, uh, melded together much longer ago, uh, more than it is now, where it's distinctly you're English and you're distinctly Irish. Um, right. So I think it's I think that you, it sounds like what from your statement. I think Irish would be probably a whole lot more prominent back in the like like early just after like the first few centuries certainly would be more prominent there but Mm -hmm. um yeah anyway (laughs) it's interesting to think about i mean and like you said your what great-grandfather was 100 percent native american uh my dad's side yeah what do we know what tribe he was a part of the lena lenape oh really yeah the high school right next door to uh, where I went to high school was uh, Lenape Valley Regional. Oh, nice. <laughs> this is in northern New Jersey. so uh... Yeah, 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 yeah. Which would make sense because that's the Lenape tribes were were within the northeastern and uh, northeastern Pennsylvania and New Jersey kind of areas. Um, so, yeah, that's uh, it's funny. Yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a cool kind of history. I mean, um, there's like there's a there's a village 
or like a, it is called, it's called a Waterloo Village. Um, okay. It's in, I think it's in Hackettstown, New Jersey, which is like part of the westernmost county of Northwest New Jersey. So yeah, right before you cross over the Delaware Water Gap to get into Eastern Pennsylvania, mm-hmm. is um, um, it's called Warren County. Mm-hmm. And anyways, um, Waterloo Village is like an old revolutionary time, uh, like what do you call it? Like reenactment, mm-hmm. and and they have like a whole section of things of the Lenape tribe, like, um, I don't know, like a whole section of like their whole community and stuff like that. And yeah, and things yeah. that they would use 200 plus years ago and stuff. And mm. uh, it's pretty fascinating. Yeah. Yeah. Have you ever gone to Bushkill Falls? Yes. But like a long time ago. Have you ever been into the Native American Museum there? Oh, man, I don't remember entirely. That's a good question. That was like my dad, because I think my my dad is very proud of the fact that he has Native American in him. And so every time that we would go to Bushkill Falls, he always made it a point to go into the Native American Museum. And as a kid, um, uh, there was, I can't remember what kind of, I don't know what tribe was being featured but inside the building there's a large room where in that large room is a a hut a recreation of a hut of one of these tribes and you would go in and it would be like living with the living with the the native americans for for a little bit and (laughs) there was there was a mannequin dressed up as as a member of this tribe and every time you would go in it would just be like in the dark corner and you just like i just remember being afraid to go into this little hut because i would you go in and all of a sudden there would be this weird mannequin sitting in the dark (laughs) corner um (laughs) but uh the the older i grew the more times that i went in it i expected it to be there uh and um the more i appreciated the the museum um it's a it's a fascinating history and i i wish that i knew more my great-grandfather doesn't i mean we don't really associate that closely with my dad's side of the family. Mm-hmm. And, um, uh, but he doesn't tend to really talk a whole lot about it. I don't know if it's because he feels like, oh, I'm, I'm one of the last members and I'm, we're dying out and like kind of want to let that be or whatever, mm-hmm. but, um, either way. <laughs> Now that I think about it, I feel like Trigar could almost be a Native American name. I wonder if it is. Uh, you know? <laughs> although, actually, I don't know. Well, that's my, so my dad's mother's father is that side. So I don't know. I don't, because, so I don't know if that is where the Native American would come in. Mm. but um yeah again i don't i I don't know because my my the grandfather who gave us that that name is no longer alive so i I am not able to ask him what he knows about it yeah 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 and and i'm basing that assumption off of nothing like i've no (laughs) i'm just like i'm like finding no association it's (laughs) it's totally valid because it's like 
Trigar, what could that possibly be? And then you're like given the hint of like, oh, it could be that. And you're like, yeah, it could be that. Yeah. And then and then you're like, but it could be this. And then you're like, yeah, it could be that too. It's just like <laughs> I literally, I really don't know. Uh <laughs> I wish that I did, but I'm just gonna have to go with the fact that the the internet keeps telling me it's Polish. Yeah, yeah. Defer to the internet, man. Like that's the that's like you 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 see it and it's like, well, there there it is. There's the answer. I don't need to <laughs> I don't need yeah. to try go past that. Yeah, yeah. Um, so yeah, Steven, this is this is fun because you are you are the first musicologist to be on the making noise podcast. Am I? Nice. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> it's it's an exciting moment right now. Making history. Making history, it's yeah. In the making, yeah. pun intended yeah there we go (laughs) (laughs) um yeah i was recently we recently had a conversation on your podcast yeah absolutely uh, the the composer chronicles yeah um which was an exceptional conversation i enjoyed it so much you are yeah an amazing host um, (laughs) (laughs) and ask some pointed questions but i was wondering if you could talk a little bit about uh the backgrounds for well actually yeah, I definitely want to talk about the podcast, but like, can we talk a little bit about what led you to the podcast as a musicologist? As you know, where you went to Temple University, that's where you got your master's, right? Yeah, that's where I got yeah. my master's, right? Yeah. yeah. Um, so, what really started me going down th- this path when I when I was graduating from my undergrad, I had completely already known that the going into music education was was something that was not for me i went into going into college thinking that music education was the only way i could ever be a professional musician in any way just because every band director in the area every actually more so the opposite way around every professional musician in the area was some kind of director at some kind of school so i had this idea that oh if i want to be a successful musician then i have to be a teacher uh and so i went into college got my first assistant band director position as a sophomore in college because I happened to be in the right place at the right time. And the school district was like, we don't care if you have a degree yet, we're just going to hire you. Uh, and so I worked that year and absolutely despised it. Mm. <laughs> uh, and it was because I was so into music and my students weren't. And I was just kind of like, why can't you just appreciate the things that I appreciate like I appreciate it? And it was it was frustrating for me. And it, besides the, the politics of, of public education, and specifically in secondary schools and, and lower. Uh, and so jump ahead, um, I was getting to the point where I needed to... I was getting ready to graduate and I had decided that um, I had to change my major. Um, if I was going to stay in education, then I would have to stay for an extra year and a half, putting me in school for five and a half years in undergrad. Um, or I could change my major that moment and go to performance, to graduate on time and uh, essentially begin 
pursuing my career as a musicologist um, because that by that point I had known that music history was the thing that I wanted to do. And so I changed to trumpet performance to uh, to be able to pursue music history like I wanted. And I took a year off, worked for the Atlanta Symphony Orchestra. Um, I just built up my resume and um, then I applied to Temple, got the Temple and long way around to get to the more specific answer to the question that you asked. Uh, when I was going through Temple, it was, I was constantly told, oh, when you have your own classroom, this is what you need to do. And in my head, I kept saying, I left education for a reason. I know that going into to higher education, teaching undergrad students is going to be a bit different, but I'm, I don't always want to be a teacher. I've never really, I do, I do consider myself a teacher in some ways, but uh, not in a classroom setting. And so when I eventually graduated from Temple, I was looking for something that was going to allow me to continue pursuing musicology that wasn't going to bind me into the expectations of what all musicologists are expected to do, um, which, sorry, that sentence doesn't make sense, but <laughs> I didn't want to go into what I was expected to to do as a musicologist. Could you, um, could you briefly explain what that would have been? So, I mean, kind of what I was saying before, when I was sitting in classrooms, they were saying, okay, so you're going to, when, when you have your own students, you need to do this. Um, here's what you need to do so that you can go ahead and publish articles and journals. Um, and here's what you need to do so that you can start um, publishing your own books. And, uh, and although I do, I do write books, I, I do writing. Writing is one of my, my most one thing that I consider myself to be as a writer. Um, but the, the expectation is, at least in my own experience, is that you graduate as a music historian and then you immediately go into teaching the next generation of music historians who then continue on to be teachers. And, and then it's just a continuous cycle of teachers teaching music historians who eventually become teachers and then and so on and so forth, almost as if um, music historians are expected to to be teachers. Um, mm. That it's the only, and it's the only profession where you'll be stable, um, which in some respects is is true. Um, what I do as a music music historian is certainly not stable, um, but uh, it's something that I love to do. Um, I something that. I want to make stable. Um, so I, I guess I guess that's what I mean by um, expectations put upon music uh, music historians specifically. Yeah, so so essentially it's expected that as a musicologist or music histor music historian, you would go on to teach the next generation of music historians on top of doing research and having yeah. having work published and everything, right? Right, because uh, so much of what happens um, in this field, uh, and, and in a lot of respects, so many research opportunities 
come about because they are a professor at a university. I, I had um, a friend of mine who teaches at Temple as well. And the main reason why he became a professor was because of the opportunities that present themselves research-wise when you become a professor. Um, he could only do a specific, he could only do his research um, and get funded to do that research because he was a professor. And so the um, being a professor, they would give him a certain amount of money to go and take a semester off to, to study in Belgium uh, or, or whatever to do to, to, to eventually come back, write a book, have it published by the university because they were the ones who gave him the time and money to go and do such research. Right. So it's it, it, that is kind of how I felt that I was being pushed when I was going to college, uh, specifically at Temple, um, I know that I do have some professors who always told me you could do whatever you want to do, but especially some of the older professors that I had, it was consistently, well, no, as a music historian, the, the most that we ever expect you to do is to continue on to become a teacher. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. It's It's something that, it seems to me that it's it's a field of of research that is is steadily sort of branching outward beyond the uh, university, beyond you know the academy. Yeah, yeah. And it's and it makes sense that it's been sort of fostered within that because it requires certain resources. Yeah, it, it doesn't necessarily require, but like those resources, like really help. Oh yeah, like like your like your friend you mentioned, right? He he gets to go mm -hmm. to Belgium and and pursue the work that he wants to be studying, right. which which could present like a whole new concept or way of thinking about um, some field of music or study or like culture or whatever. Yeah, which I mean, I can totally see why he went down that road because the moment I graduated from Temple, I felt like I had lost an incredible amount of resources that I had at my disposal while I was there, just being able to access the library and being able to sit in the library for a solid 20 hours, just scripts, just skimming through books and, and being able to pull a book off the shelf, and then to be able to walk down the street uh, to the music building, scan myself into the building and go up to a practice room and then play out certain things that I may have found in my research. And it was being in the academic world and being somebody who where, where my profession inherently <laughs> requires research um, and to have a university at your disposal kind of perpetuates that idea of, yeah, you should probably become a teacher in this field because we, the, establishments, the universities, the colleges who uh, would be hiring you also have the resources that you need to continue the research that you still love to do. Right. Um, and I, I often wish that I had and I and I do I, I have friends who work in universities, who allow me access every once in a while, who um, will take out a book for me. But it's 
one book is not like being able to go into the library and literally take a whole shelf off of the cases and off the stacks and put it down in front of you and sit there in a whole day and skim through like 20 books. <laughs> it's and, and that's where so much more, that's where research becomes so much more, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? It, it, you don't become stuck in certain biases when you're doing your research because you you see a span of more work than you would when you only give the chance to read one book. Like I, I, the the research that I do for for example my my podcast, I get limited. I get limited to the few books that I have on my shelf. Mm. I get limited to having to go to Wikipedia sometimes. I mean, Wikipedia is a whole lot better than it used to be. I know people will say, um, don't use Wikipedia because it doesn't have any good, decent information, but you'd be surprised <laughs> how, how good Wikipedia has become in the past few years. Um, but it, there, there's, there's, nothing, there's nothing like being able to sit in a university library where you have so many books, so many varying opinions, so many different approaches to how how your research has been done, and to then be able to formulate your own opinion based off of those multiple books, rather than just extract the opinion of one or two people from your personal library. Um, or the one book that your friend is able to to get off the bookshelf and secretly hand to you, hoping that you're going to give it back to him so that he can give it back to the library. <laughs> right. Yeah. 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 So it, it's really cool to hear this, actually, like the, the idea of of finding competing um, uh, perspectives, yeah. you know, where you're not, like you said, not being stuck in some sort of bias. Um, right. I mean, it makes me think about... Um, one of one of the composers I've loved so much is uh, Jacinto Chelsea, and yeah. he um, he's known for having musicians come. He was like a I think he was like a prince or like the last prince of some somewhere near Italy or outside of Italy. I don't know, but mm-hmm. he would have musicians come to his his uh, his home and like jam, and he would record them, mm. and then he would sort of take make arrangements of those jam sessions and then like flesh it out into a whole piece and sometimes he had this guy i can't remember his name like thomasino or some some italian name that starts with t um he would have that guy like orchestrate things for him mm-hmm. and then after chelsea died in like 1988 um that guy came forward and was like oh by the way all of chelsea's music is really mine so i should be credited for it and not mm-hmm. chelsea and and so like as far as I can see, there's been some sort of debate as to whether or not Chelsea really wrote his own music and stuff. Um, that comes to mind when you talk about these competing perspectives of, yeah. you know, and, and not being stuck in your own bias of what is or what isn't. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's tough, especially when you're, it's so important to be able to go, I, I, and I think this is a conversation that we had after our recording on my podcast, um, but we had talked about this idea that um, of, of prime, like primary sources versus secondary sources, and what we should kind of what to expect when going into those kinds of sources. And yes, primary sources are 
they are closer they're closer to the time to one the time and closer to the person that you're your, or topic that you're trying to, to study but even primary sources have their biases because I, I think we literally had, the, we literally talked about the, this specific composer, Scriabin. Scriabin thought of himself like, like a god, um, and his ex-wife thought of him as scum of the earth. So each of them are going to literally, although one person is the person themselves, they think that they're god, so they're going to have a much more positive opinion about themselves as opposed to the person who spent so much time with him. And she's going to say that he was the worst person on the face of the planet and that whatever he's saying is a whole bunch of crap. And so don't believe a single word he says, but these are two primary sources, both varying in opinion. So it's like, who's who's right who's 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 speaking the truth right like (laughs) right so that's another problem when when researching is that yes you can go to the primary sources but how accurate are the primary sources um sometimes the not the primary source but the source directly after that like the, the the person who is writing about those primary sources are probably a little bit more close than the primary sources or several sources so it's like trying to find the middle ground between the primary source and the secondary source although that next source after the primary is technically still secondary um but you know what i mean <laughs> it's it's so um it's such a like it seems like such a a, a mess to sort of get into oh, yeah. like <laughs> And I don't mean that in insulting me. <laughs> That's good. That's exactly why you do it. <laughs> like, um, it, like, and I don't mean that in an insulting way or anything. Like, um, no. just sort of trying to to parse through it all. Like, uh, my girlfriend was telling me she had a really interesting conversation in her in one of her musicology classes, <laughs> and it was something about, uh, um, oh God, who was it? Was it Duke Ellington or? I can't remember. It was um, it was a black jazz musician from the early 20th century, and they had written a autobiography mm-hmm. talking about their experience at a certain period in their life. And then there was a biography written by someone who lived after them. Okay. And in the autobiography, they talked. The person I think it was Duke Ellington, but they talked less about their experience with racism. Okay. And then in the biography like the whole first half set up the tone of like what the social tensions were of the time, the race relations and stuff, and then use that as a catalyst to talk about the biography of the, of the musician. Right. And so she was telling me how the discussion that they had in their class was of the nature of, of the idea of like, like kind of what you're saying, where it's like the primary source has their perspective on things. Right. And then the secondary source is viewing it from some other lens in some way. Right. And and so, like, I, I don't know how to articulate what I'm trying to get at right here, but it's it's no, like yeah. I feel like it's connected to what you're saying. Yeah, you know? because once you once that one person the the next person removed from the autobiography in this this case, they are already besides looking at the subject matter, they are then stepping back and are able to see around the subject matter. They're able to see 
um, the the other people that lived in their life, the sometimes even what the venues have to say. Look, the, my, my thesis um, in in grad school was looking at a ton a ton of program booklets from from U.S. orchestras all around the, the um, all around the U.S. Um, even just looking at those because the the program booklets. They're, they're not going to lie to you unless there was a cancellation of some sorts. A program booklet has no reason to lie to you about what's being performed on a concert. So like, for example, a, a composer says I, it was mid July and it was really hot and I couldn't get this piece performed because it was too hot for the violins to play. And then you look at uh, the, you, you try to find when this piece was supposed to be performed and you you look at the the booklet and you're like no it wasn't july it was may so it shouldn't be that bad so the 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 there was some other thing in the composer's mind that said oh there there's there's more there's reasons beyond my control that yeah. this piece didn't work out uh it's probably probably didn't work out because i either you didn't compose it the proper way um or you were a terrible orchestrator or your engraving was bad or whatever but you the the composer don't want to say that about yourself yeah especially if you're writing an autobiography where you're trying to make yourself look the best you can i i, I get it so when whichever musician if it duke ellington or i mean i can i can see duke ellington wanting to do that um but he's not going to want to talk about that because he wants to see himself portrayed in, in, in the way that he saw himself or the yeah. way he wanted people to see himself. Right. So then that automatically creates this biasy on, on himself. <laughs> um, it, it, it's, it's automatically going to create difficulty, not difficulty, but it's going to create something else it's going to create a problem for the next person trying to do research or reading this um more specifically doing research because now you as the one doing the research have or having to and it's always so important to do this you always have to question whether or not the the source is looking at this in in a, an objective or subjective way right. um so it's 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 a big it's a big thing to to consider when when doing this kind of research and it's it's important to do and it's always important to question everything it, it, it's like so crazy for me to think about this sort of stuff like biographies or autobiographies especially when the person if the biography is being written while the person is still alive or whatever um it's like i can't fucking remember what i did yesterday yeah. you know like or like if, if i'm gonna write a memoir about my life or whatever and you know yeah i don't know i can't remember exactly like what happened when i was 15 years old and like right. i was skateboarding and then the cops showed up or something and like you know i don't right. i can't i i could like i don't know it kind of amazes me to to see that stuff and then at the same time i wonder like am i Am I just real? Do I have a shitty memory, or, or are people just bullshitting their way through biographies? You know, like yeah, not not to discredit autobiographies because autobiographies are a wonderful insight into a person's mind. Sure. Because then you do know, you do know that that composer or musician or whoever had that opinion about themselves. 
you 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 know then at that point that the composer feels this way uh and in certain cases they're 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 right i mean especially around the time that the autobiography was being written i mean i remember reading um a certain I don't know if it was, I don't think it was an autobiography, but it was definitely an account written by Sibelius. And Sibelius had this opinion about one of his pieces of work that was several, several years in the, in the, in the future. But at the time that he had written something, there was another source that said something completely different. So mm. you yes, you have the, the person talking about it, but people's opinions change. Um, but at least you know that they had two different opinions about the work. Mm -hmm. um, and so even then, like as a researcher, you can't say, oh, well, Sibelius said that his Fifth Symphony was the best thing that he ever wrote. Because then by the end of his life, I mean, and this is this is totally not what Sibelius ever said, but by the end of Sibelius's life, he could have been like, no, the 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 Fifth Symphony was was total crap, and then he died thinking that way. Oh God, I hope um, not. I love that symphony. No, no, that's, that's why I said that, that, that. Don't say that. I did say that about Sibelius. Sibelius. Oh no, 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 I'm not, I'm not offended. Re, rewrote that many, many, many times. Yeah, yeah. Um, Sibelius's Fifth Symphony was one that he loved dearly enough mm. to continue to rewrite it over and over again because he saw so much potential in it. Um, so <laughs> I was just using Sibelius' right, yeah, yeah. <laughs> as, as an example. <laughs> um, no, you're fine. But, but yeah, so. So here's a question. And um, uh, we'll definitely get back on track to the, to the original line of questioning of... Uh, your trajectory of, with your career, but um, what's a, what's a biography that you've read that feels or or you you have a good you have good reason to 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 recognize that it's incredibly accurate, I composer just, or otherwise too. Like it doesn't it, it could be like a movie star or like a mm -hmm. mathematician, you know. Honestly, I think one of the best biographies that I had ever read was. Um, Tchaikovsky's brother Modest wrote a biography about his brother several years after he passed away. I think one of the reasons why the I think that the autobiography was um, Life and Letters, um, because Tchaikovsky is is notorious for having kept all of his correspondences um, for the most part. Um, he was he wrote letters literally he, he would write letters five times a day to the same person he he wrote so many letters that there's literally a website that i have worked for in the past that is specifically dedicated to translating all of his letters from the multiple languages that he wrote them in um and i think that's one one thing that that really helps um that helped his brother out when he was writing this biography. But another reason why um, the biography really works well is because his brother started writing it while his brother was still alive. When his, when, um, when Piotr was still alive, Modest was, was there and he recognized that his brother was gaining success around the world. And so he, he started taking notice in certain things and, and started jotting things down and was there when his brother died. So 
that is one of the best biographies that I've ever read and enough where I tried to find as early of an edition as I possibly could. If I could stand up and go grab it, I would right now, but it's like, it, it's old enough where if I, if I feel like if I were to pick it up, it would fall apart. Um, because it, and it, it was very obvious that Modas Tchaikovsky loved his brother uh-huh. dearly because he, and, and the reason, another reason why I feel like it's an incredible biography is because he states multiple times that he doesn't know if this event was true or not. He's stating, he states, this event happened. This is what I remember my brother saying happened. Mm-hmm. This is what I remember other people saying about this event. So this, he basically warns you throughout the biography to take it with a grain of salt, um, hey. which is another great reason, another great thing to do in a biography because um, he he knows, I mean, being despite being his brother, he knows that his brother was a bit of a dramatic person and that <laughs> he would have fights with people just off of feeling off one day. Um, mm. There were many times where where Modest would write that um, Tchaikovsky would um, would have an argument with somebody just because he felt attacked in some kind of way. And then the other person would say, I didn't, I didn't mean it that way. But in Tchaikovsky's mind, it was was all this. Um, it was the biggest deal ever. And um, and Modest would would tell you, like, I have spoken to the other party in this argument. And this is how I think that the conversation actually went. Um, not to discredit my brother. I will tell you what my brother said happened, but I will also tell you to not think of it so so personally. Um, this is so. incredibly fascinating to hear about I me mean, because it's like it makes me think about um, cognitive behavioral therapy mm-hmm. and how in cognitive behavioral therapy the the idea is for you to um, be able to recognize and manage your emotions and not trust everything you're feeling as to be reality. Right. R- right. And so it's like, uh, Modus, is that his name? Modus? Yeah. His brother's Modus. Yeah. He, he, it's almost like he's the therapist in this situation and saying like, look, there's this perspective, but there's also this one too. Yeah. Understand that there's some truth in the middle somewhere or the truth yeah. is somewhere in the middle in a way. Yeah. Um, it's incredibly fascinating. And, 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 I think that that is such a great example mm-hmm. of, of what a good biography would be. And I think what also helped notice in this case was that he also worked artistically with his brother. I mean, uh, several times um, Tchaikovsky would ask Modest to, to write the libretto or something for him. Mm-hmm. So they worked, they worked together. So he knew how his brother worked artistically. Artistically. He didn't know him just personally. He knew him professionally. So he was able to, to then parse out certain things thinking like, okay, so I know how he thought when I did this, this way, I, when I wrote a particular paragraph in this way, 
so when Tchaikovsky would complain about another librettist doing something a specific way, I know that what Tchaikovsky is saying is not all that accurate because I know that way he works. So that that wasn't another reason why I love that biography because not only did he know him personally, he knew him professionally. Um, so that's that's so fascinating. I, I, I so what's the biography called again? I think it's called um, just Life in Letters. Um, either the Life and Letters of of Trevor Ilyich Tchaikovsky or, or um, just simply Life and Letters. Um, I'll, I'll, I'm going to link to it in the description, in the show notes, and yeah. um, I might I might even throw up a quick a quick little image of the the uh, yeah. title the the cover while you're talking about it so people can see yeah. it. Yeah, I mean, there's only one biography uh, of Pyotr Ilyich Tchaikovsky about that was written by Modest, so yeah. <laughs> it is it's easily can be looked up. So um, right, right. But uh, yeah. It's it's a, it's well, it's my favorite biography of any composer uh, musician that I've ever read, um, just because of how how well thought out it was. How uh, it's one that every time I do research on Tchaikovsky, I go to first because I know that his brother was somebody who was like, yes, this is the event that happened, but here's what I also know about it. Mm-hmm. Um, so. It, it's 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 fascinating listening to you talk about all this. I mean, because like it's it's so evident, and and you can hear it clearly how much you enjoy it, and yeah. <laughs> and that that you are a musicologist. You know, mm-hmm. like like whether or not it's 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 by as you were mentioning earlier, um, mm-hmm. following the traditional route of being a musicologist. Yeah. Um, I mean that that kind of doesn't matter, and and so so at what point then were you like okay, well you knew you didn't want to take the traditional route. Mm-hmm. And then at some point you started your podcast and said, well, you have a few podcasts actually, right? I have two podcasts. Um, uh, yes, I have two podcasts. Um, one is the Composer Chronicles, as we've mentioned. And you, I think by the time this episode either goes up, you'll have already been on it. I'm not sure when your schedule is, but uh, yes, you were, you're, <laughs> you've been on it. Um and the other one is a podcast that I do with my fiance called Cultured But Not Really, um, where um, that podcast started because um, both of us feel like we are incredibly cultured about specific things, myself being more of the classical kind of classical culture and and history and and a classical art and literature and, and all those kinds of things. And then he is like modern culture all the way, like anime and, uh, and drag race and, and all these very prominently modern kind of cultural things. So when, when he approached me saying, I want, he wanted to do a podcast with me, that was the thing that we both kind of focused on the fact that the both of us feel that we're incredibly cultured, but we're not really cultured in the way that the other person is. So that's when I came up with that title of cultured, but not really, um, because both of us are cultured, but we're not really. Uh, right, right. <laughs> um, so um, that one is a podcast that we just both love just doing it for fun it's just a chance for us every every once in a while every two weeks we get to just sit down and just bring our topic that we think was interesting to the table 
um like uh he has talked about anime uh, and i've talked about things like new year's resolutions um or bread or um and I, I, I try, I try desperately to not talk about musical topics because I know that I always talk about musical topics. So if I can talk about something else, then I will. Mm-hmm. Um, but I have done a Tchaikovsky episode. I have done an opera episode. Um, and then he's done other things like talking about Robert, Roberta Williams, the the video game developer, or um, uh or or, or anim- like i said anime um the scp foundation um and and all those those things so um yeah, that that's that's my second podcast uh and uh it's a lot of fun i love the title it's such a <laughs> it's such a good title thank you it's incredibly playful and like but also um like direct and and like even like the title already gives me an idea of what it might be about yeah. You know, or, or not that what it might be about, but at least what you you two are sort of, uh, you know, yeah. presenting in a way. Um, yeah, there's a podcast I listen to that has a similar title. It's like these two journalists who talk about like what's happening in the news and whatnot and like other things and stuff. But they call it, the podcast is called uh, Useful Idiots. Useful Idiots. <laughs> yeah, which, which I love that title too. It's just it's just That's so. A good uh, title. Yeah, yeah yeah um that's pretty cool though i, I like that a lot thank you yeah, yeah. it's a We're good dichotomy in... like the yeah. the uh old world and the new world whatever you want to call it yeah because i mean that was a thing that we thought of like so much of history has been so much of history has influenced our, our current culture mm-hmm. and we approach every episode with we, we we always talk about like the the history of uh, of this particular topic whether it be modern or or uh, long in the past uh and then we always for the most part we always then talk about how we perceive this bit of culture to fit into daily life like when he talked about um about roberta williams he talked about how it impacted his childhood um and how her work has helped to develop future games um or when i talked about bread i talked about how the creation like where bread came from and how important bread is not only as a food part of our food uh but how it even affected language specific like the the use of the word breadwinner or bringing home the bread or it just just things like that and then that's how we approach every single episode is what is this thing and then how has it impacted our culture currently yeah and also the the symbolism in christianity with the body of christ right exactly yeah that's a pretty big one um it's kind of interesting to think about that actually i haven't thought about the way in which bread has or bread but food in general you know, yeah. like the sort of ways that food represents some sort of thing outside of itself, like bigger than what it is. Right. You know? Well, if bread, but after after bread became a thing where people were like, this is a cheap thing that we can make out of literally everything around us. Because some of the earliest breads were made out of just like ground up fern leaves and 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 just anything that they could grind up into some fine flour. Um, but shortly after that bread became a, a 
a symbol of status and and um if you were uh, a lord in your specific territory that made a lot of bread then you show that you one have a lot of workers to be able to make bread um and two that you had a lot of land to be able to produce such bread um and and then that's how and then because that it developed into the the way we, we talk about what bread means like breadwinner breadwinner is somebody who brings in the money um and even the the old word for now the old english word for lord stems from the word for bread as well so it's just it's an incredibly fascinating topic that you would never think about which is why when i talked about it i was like yeah we're going to talk about bread but bread is important <laughs> it's so it's so amazing man i mean like i love i love that right there that that whole idea of of yeah like okay we're talking about bread but it's actually like incredibly fascinating yeah yeah you know and and like the idea of a breadwinner and and yeah uh, that's so the etymology of it stems from essentially having enough wealth to right. to to yeah like have enough people to make it have the lands to provide mm -hmm. the ingredients and um is that also like breaking bread breaking i was just literally thinking breaking bread you're sharing your wealth right sharing sharing your your hard-earned work with each other uh that that idea it's just it's bread has so much impact on not just our like our, our dining experience it mm -hmm. has a lot to do with, with with our language with our with our culture with how we interact with people um and we don't really know it we don't really know that it has done that it, it's become so far removed from from what it has symbolized uh and it, it kind of just you can go into the store nowadays and you can buy pre-sliced pre bread and you don't think twice about where it came from. You just know that you like a certain brand mm -hmm. and then it sits on your shelf for however long it takes to expire uh, and or unless you finish it first. Um, but uh, yeah, I'm, somebody, I'm a big fan of bread. I'm a big fan of bread. I, I will devour that. <laughs> I'm so I, I I miss bread. I have celiac and I right. I miss a good crusty baguette. I oh. I I miss bread so much, which which is also ironic why I was the one who talked about that topic because I don't eat bread. I, I hate I hate gluten-free bread. I have yet to find a gluten-free bread that I enjoy. Right. Um so, uh but uh yeah it's it's hard to substitute stuff like that sometimes like oh i know I, I yeah i mean i've i've had but it's funny we're, we're getting to the conversation we had um i think it was after we finished recording your po uh, on your mm -hmm. podcast yeah about about food um but yeah, yeah i mean like I, I i've definitely had food where it was like oh here's like um i'm trying to think of like some sort of substitute one thing that i think actually is a good substitute um is buffalo cauliflower mm -hmm. I, I i do like that um but i also <laughs> love buffalo wings like <laughs> oh, i love them 
<laughs> I, I would de- I, I default to a buffalo wing any day mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. um but yeah i'm like my mind is just completely slipping right now as to substitutes i've had where i'm like this is this is not acceptable i had a weird one actually here's a really weird one i would even call it a substitute i would just say it's a weird combination i got a burger at this restaurant this was in um royal oak michigan right outside of detroit okay and the the bun of the burger was uh like a mac and cheese fried dough ball thing hmm. and i don't know i was feeling adventurous <laughs> i got it and i was just so disappointed it, it, it like fell it's, apart and like yeah but that's something that sound that like sounds very appealing mm-hmm. but those things never work the way that they think that it's supposed to work um and especially like, I, I don't know what kind of restaurant this was but especially if they're trying to make it fast mm-hmm. and, and they're they've got a, a room full of of people who all want to order the same thing at the same time mm-hmm. um so, so to try to make it fast, it's not going to work the way that it was designed because you're trying to make it fast and trying to keep into like individual pieces of macaroni together with just cheese isn't going to always work as well as you think it does. That's, that's, that's so true. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I think I think from that experience, I, I I learned right away. Like, I can't order a burger unless it has a real bun. Like, that's that's yeah. that's you know, my my expectation is I'm having a burger. It's gonna have some sort of bun, whether it's a brioche or like, mm-hmm. you know, something something fun, sesame seed. I don't know. Yeah, which is why another reason why I hate gluten free bread because it's either incredibly dense, where you take a bite of that burger and all you taste is the bread or the bun falls apart on you and then you're literally just holding the meat patty and whatever is on top of it in your fingers rather than any bun um so i just clearly clearly i have opinions about gluten-free bread which is something that i am limited to um and i'm and i'm sorry to my parents because my parents for most of my life owned a wholesale gluten-free bakery and their primary thing was bread and i i love them dearly but all gluten-free bread is trash to me i have yet to find a <laughs> i've yet to find a one that i actually enjoy um there are ones that i'll buy just because i'm like this is fine it's fine i will I, I, I will stomach this i will put power through just because you make good toast but you don't do anything else beyond toast right right yeah well it, it, it makes sense too to hear like you know you have less of a desire for the thing that was the family business because yeah. you were so close to it yeah. and 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 you know it's like it's like when when we become when we're adolescents and stuff like yeah you no longer need the approval of your parents you need the approval of your peers which then yeah. means you kind of, that's what that's the age when you start sort of rejecting your parents you know mm-hmm. and so um it's like no longer cool like oh i'm not going to eat that no <laughs> you know yeah <laughs> um so it, yeah it, i i could totally see a through line where where your desire for something like gluten-free bread would be incredibly I, I you know and the thing is too i don't know if i've ever had gluten-free bread i i may have actually actively avoided it because i just want to have straight bread i don't blame you but uh <laughs> <laughs> um but yeah and it's 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 crazy to hear about you know having celiacs and stuff like i think about that 
like I, I love yeah I love bread I love having garlic um I enjoy coffee I love dark chocolate and I have like crazy acid reflux mm. all of those things cause acid reflux yeah <laughs> and oh my god like it like kind of like you know what you're saying right now about how how frustrating and upsetting it is to not have real bread mm-hmm. like I I kind of see a through line for myself where I'm like oh shit one day I I won't be able to have dark chocolate. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> One day it's going to get so bad that I don't even want to deal with it anymore. <laughs> yeah. You'll just be like, you're like, fuck it. And you just take like a semolina and just like throw it back. Listen, literally there, there are things that I will make myself sick for. Mm-hmm. Like there is a style of pizza in Scranton. I think we actually talked about this. Oh Yeah. There's a style of pizza in Scranton that I will go home and eat and I will make myself sick for, like, because I love it so much. There have been times where I have just been like, I have a whole weekend ahead of me. I have, it's, it's a holiday weekend. I can eat this thing for on a Friday night, have, be sick on Saturday and still have one more day left to just enjoy myself. Um, and, uh, I have done that where I've gone out and I've uh, just like, I bought a, like a baguette or like a focaccia bread and, and ate a sandwich with it. Just, just, just to remember what it tastes like, <laughs> um, which is horrible. I know anybody who's listening to this or watching this that knows anything about food allergies. I know I'm destroying myself when every time I do that and I'm making it worse for myself, but I don't, I, I do it once like every other year. So. Right, right. <laughs> hey man, you you are your own person. You have full agency over what you do for yourself and what you need and what level of like pain and pleasure you're willing to, to take on mm-hmm. as do all of us. So if people have a problem with that, fuck off. <laughs> <laughs> there was one time, I think it was actually, the last time I actually did it was a few months ago. And um, my I my fiance's phone number is is used every time we we go to check out so that we get the the rewards points, um, and uh, he gets an automatic receipt sent to sent to his phone every time we use the phone number. And one time I went to the store, and I was incredibly hungry. And it was again, I think it was it was like a thanks. I think it was Thanksgiving around that time. And the the store that we shop at has these like pre-made sandwiches that I remember really enjoying. And I had a moment where I was like, I don't have work for the next five days. I'm just going to grab a sandwich. And by the time I got home, I had already finished it. And I was like, All right, I'm not going to tell them that I had the sandwich. I'm just going to say that I got sick off of something. And then... I opened the door and he was like, did you buy a sandwich? And I was like, I did. I'm sorry. (laughs) (laughs) I I did. And I'm sorry. You're going to have to, uh, to um, deal with me for the next few hours as this thing destroys my body. Um, But uh, yes, I did. (laughs) 
This is so great. This sounds like a, a sitcom or like Seinfeld or something. Right. Like I, I'm picturing, <laughs> picturing your fiance. He's like sitting at the house or whatever, and then you, and then all of a sudden his phone goes off and he sees it and he's like, "Oh, okay." <laughs> and just waiting for you to walk through the just door. Waiting for me to walk through the door. Lights turned off. I'm walking through the door. Turn on the light. <laughs> so you did this thing. Oh, that's fantastic, man. There's something about there's something about our intimate relationships that uh, uh I don't know how to how to say what I'm trying to say. Like <laughs> it just completely <laughs> creates this like real life sitcom. And yeah. and that, that dynamic is only between you and your partner. Yeah. You know, like like I, I experience this with my girlfriend all the time, with like with the stupid shit that I say, and like, mm-hmm. like I, I, I'm, I'm constantly like nudging her, you know, like, like as if, as if I was like that, that younger sibling, like poking the older one, like, you know, or uh, yeah, and and um, oh my god, I, I don't know. There's something. It, I feel like there's something about that that it, it's part of what really makes you two who you are. Yeah, and yeah. keep and keeps that dynamic so strong, you know. Yeah, yeah. Gotta gotta spice up things every once in a while. <laughs> Absolutely. Gotta I, shake it up. I, yeah, total, I, I I worry that I do it too much. <laughs> like one day, she'll she'll just like boom right in the back of my head, sort of thing. Because uh, yeah, because I'm just I'm always a shithead. But um, <laughs> you know, like I'll say something, and she'll give me like one of these, mm-hmm. you know, just like kind of glaring. Um. But that's just, you know, that's my sarcastic asshole humor. <laughs> what can you do? <laughs> I watched, uh, you ever see uh, Comedians in Cars Getting Coffee with Jerry Seinfeld? I have not, no. It's it's this show on Netflix that he does where he just, he, it, it it's so just simple and, and nonsense in a way. He, um, he gets like this really nice car or like a classic car drives it around with some other comedian they go out to get coffee and like that's the show and it's like they're just yeah. hanging out like chatting the whole time whatever yeah and one time he was out with um was it bill maher or i can't remember who it was but but he uh jerry seinfeld made this joke about them both like they said he's, he's like oh you're you're smug and i'm arrogant and so like something about writing the book of asshole manners oh. <laughs> which like that title right there it's such yeah. a it's such a contradiction you know <laughs> yeah because it's mm-hmm. like you're talking about manners which is a proper and like appropriate way to interact with people but then you mm-hmm. preface it with the word asshole yeah yeah <laughs> i feel like that's me <laughs> <laughs> asshole manners yeah i do i do have manners they're just asshole manners <laughs> right yeah <laughs> they're not the manners that you think but they're my manners I, lo- I love I love this direction we've come in. It's like uh, this this is what's fun about doing podcasts. Mm-hmm. You just suddenly end up in this area like, hey, let's talk about musicology, and it's like, oh, I'm an asshole. <laughs> yeah, yep. Just go with the flow. So the the timer went off before. Uh, how you feeling? Do you? Uh, well, I'm I'm good. Do you want you want to keep any... chatting? Yeah, we can keep going. Yeah, right, we'll we'll keep we'll keep on we'll keep on keeping on. <laughs> keep it on. <laughs> yeah, I I think. Um, one of the things that is is really fascinating about musicology is when we start talking about things like what 
what the composers were feeling or experiencing at the time. Mm -hmm. Right. Because one of the things that I have trouble with, which is definitely why I'm not a musicologist, is how to extract that. Like, how, how does one come to the point where you're able to kind of put together the, um, I guess you could say, like, aura around what the composer was experiencing during the time of writing a specific piece? Right. You know, I mean, I I, I, I know there was a point in Beethoven's life where he was trying to gain custody of his nephew, right? Yes. And mm -hmm. and 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 I'm pretty sure that's often discussed in a way where it was a really hard and trying time for him. Yeah. Um, but I mean, that's a pretty obvious example, I guess. But I mean, I don't know. What are your thoughts on that? How does how does a musicologist come to the point to explain what a composer may have been feeling at a certain point in the you know, in the process of writing a piece or even in their life. I mean, mm -hmm. I mean, that's when you always let people know that there is this, there's a chance that what you're talking about is incorrect. You have to, you have to make sure that you, you preface that in some way you, and, and you don't have to directly say it. The best way that a musicologist can uh, can note that they may be incorrect is by simply listing the source that, that they found this information. Um, I mean, one citing your sources prevents you from being like completely going over copyright things and, and claiming something is your own when it's not. But Citing your sources also provides this knowledge to others who may be looking at your your work for their own to let them know that, okay, this person, yes, this person's talking about this, and it's because they found it from this source. So this you can't take that as as one hundred percent correct um and that's probably one of the best ways um so if we're going to use the beethoven example um by simply i, I don't know if this is beethoven, something that beethoven ever did but if he wrote in one of his journals to say this this terrible event happened while trying to take custody of my nephew um the person can the person who's writing whatever research they're doing can basically either quote or paraphrase something that, that Beethoven has said, but then simply by either with a footnote or by whatever style of, of um, citing your sources would be Chicago style AMA um, or whatever. Is it AMA? I, I don't remember. I only use Chicago style. So, um, yeah, is that MLA as well? Is Chicago MLA, MLA the same? Yeah. Yes, MLA is the other one. But uh, uh, people who are in the the musical world should only ever use um, Chicago style. It's just the the accepted form of uh, of the, the musicologists in this world. Um, and so um, that's one of the the best ways the other way which is often looked a little bit less favorable um is by saying 
is by stating that um, you believe a source to be untrue um, unless that is the point of your research. Unless you're, the point of your research is to prove something, um, then so, if, for example, if a writer were to say, okay, in, in this same example, if Beethoven had kept the diary and logged on a, a specific day that a day was tough and keeping custody of his of his nephew, that um, Beethoven said uh, this, but I believe that he was overreacting in some way, or I believe that this event also happened, or this event kind of negates that idea. Um, because then you look like the asshole. <laughs> um, um, so the best thing that you can, the best thing you can do in those scenarios is to either not use it if you're if you're going to try and use it to say that I don't believe this happened unless that is literally the point of your research um or to um or to just simply make the statement that you're wanting to make and then just simply cite it um and let people look for it themselves i mean there have been many times where not not only is citing your sources great for the next person doing the research because then they have your pool of resource resources to add on to their own pool of resources and which doubles your pool at that point mm-hmm. um but um it then allows it it allows the other person to then have the opportunity and sometimes it, the the research will go to the extreme where they will then um not only cite the source but in one of the indexes or or uh, appendixes at the uh, appendices at the end um will then either quote what they were they were trying to get at or paraphrase it in some way um, and then that gives you the chance to to read what um what they were pulling from mm-hmm. uh and it gives the reader a chance to make their own assumptions without taking the researchers biases into consideration i mean you you do you do have to take the researchers um biases into consideration as well when you do your own because again everything that's written down is the person who wrote them down's own thoughts and 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 whatnot um despite whether or not they're trying to state facts um so yeah i hope that answers your question <laughs> no totally well it, it's it's really it it makes me think a lot about like the 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 process you're explaining is incredibly scientific because right like when you hear scientists talk about like you know like like, like covid is the most obvious example today right but like when they talk about the data uh uh anyone who's a real scientist would start by saying what we know right now is or what the data is saying right now or based on the data this is what we know right you know like i don't think a real scientist would ever say this is this and that's fact you know um so like what you're explaining sounds a lot like that to me in regards Mm -hmm. to when a musicologist is trying to explain uh um how a composer may have been feeling or what they've been 
what they potentially were thinking and stuff. It makes me, you mentioned one thing um, about what sort of conclusion a researcher might be coming to with mm-hmm. it, with their uh, research. And it makes me kind of wonder, have you experienced any, any musicological research that the researcher is starting with a conclusion before pursuing the research, which then creates a bias in their results, sort of like, um, like that whole, whole saying of like, when you have a hammer, everything's a nail. And yeah. so like, for example, if they look at like, I don't know, um, Schubert and they're, and they have this assumption like, Oh, Schubert was a dickhead. And then, mm-hmm. so whenever they go to research everything, they're looking to see dickhead tendencies in everything. They find. Yeah. Oh, look here. He's a dick there. Oh, look at that letter. He was, you know, like, have you seen that much? Um, I'm having a hard time figuring, thinking of an exact case. I feel like so many of those kinds of um, writings happen in much smaller forms that I just don't have the access to anymore. Mm. Um, a lot of those kinds of, a lot of that kind of research is uh, kind of held more specifically to like article writing and um in in uh, scholarly journals and again i just don't have that the access to them anymore so i haven't really come across a whole lot of them in my recent kind of searching most of my research nowadays is um is kept to to the books that i can find in in stores and um and what i can find um but I have, I have in the past come across where the researcher has a specific point that they're trying to make and they only ever, ever look at that and they only try to find things that prove their point, but completely missing the other things that, that, uh, that, that musician and composer whoever mm-hmm. also did um i won't name names but there it, it wasn't it's not a written it's not a written thing that i've i've come across it was um a, a debate that we had in in class the year that i was graduating um we were studying uh the operas of ricard strauss and the person coming to the debate had this idea in his mind that uh strauss was a nazi simply based off of one thing that strauss had done um strauss was um strauss had was a composer for um somebody who headed the hitler youth and the they came to the debate thinking, oh, this one thing that I found about Richard Strauss, that means that he is a Nazi. So everything that I'm going to do is I'm going to find every case where I believe that Richard Strauss was a Nazi and then bring it to the table, which I had read the same thing that he read Uh because I saw that he was about to bring this debate to the table in that class. And I knew better um, than 
what he was trying to to bring um so i found the same article uh and that he was using to prove his point and the same article that he was using also was not supposed to was not was not aiding his his point he found the one thing in the article that provided a fact he found the fact in the article but he didn't read the next sentence because the next sentence was the only reason that he continued to work for this person was because i can't remember if it was his daughter or his son i don't remember but his child had married into a jewish family right. and so the only reason why strauss continued to work for this leader of the hitler youth was so that he was in good graces with that person and that person wouldn't report him for having a family member that was jewish Mm. so that that wasn't that was one case where i was like you need to you need to finish reading the sentence or, or or continue reading on because you are finding you're only finding one thing that you're you're wanting to find i mean and i and i understand that this the person who is coming into this debate was trying to be forward thinking and th and saying well we shouldn't support Richard Strauss because he was he had this one problematic thing about himself which is not really a problematic thing to begin with it's very um, nuanced yeah very nice um, situation the only reason why he associated with this uh with the, the Nazi party was because he was trying to save his family he was trying to to protect them in some way um so while i don't know exact articles or books or physical documents that i have read that have done that i know i've come across them i can't pinpoint them mm -hmm. but that's at least the one one moment where i've, I've been in a conversation where that has happened uh, oh, it's an exceptional example because that's actually sort of in part why i asked that question it it it, it seems to me from my perspective that the last couple of years especially it's become incredibly fashionable mm -hmm. to actively um discredit and um like this person wanted to entirely reject accepting strauss into the canon of classical music right. just 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 because there there's there is even some affiliation um right. without even taking in like what you're presenting the nuance of the situation or um, you know, it's sort, it's sort of like that, it is that conversation of um, separating the artists from the art sort mm -hmm. of thing. And when does that happen? Should that happen? Um, yeah. It's that, that, yeah, no, that was a great example of that. It was, it was mm -hmm. a really good example, it, especially because I think I recall, because he, he, he lived through World War II, right? Yes. Mm -hmm. I, I think it was in, um, you know, The Rest is Noise by Alex Ross. Oh, my favorite books i have literally sitting on my bookshelf <laughs> <laughs> it's a fucking great book man it's an amazing book um i think in that book he talks about how when the uh us came to uh when they what do you say like 
infiltrated Germany or whatever you call it, like in 1945. Mm-hmm. Invaded, when, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, when, when, they, uh, when they finally took over and the Nazis were defeated, whatever you say. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I feel like it was Strauss he was talking about when the U.S. soldiers who were coming into his house would, um, there was a bust of like Bach or something. Mm-hmm. Or Bates, I can't remember who it was. It was some composer, and they kept yeah. asking him, like, "Oh, who's the, who's the bust of?" And then, and then Strauss was like, "If one more, if one more fucking guy asks me about who this bust is, I'm going to say it's Hitler's father, oh <laughs> or something like that." I, I I can't remember exactly what it was, and I I, yeah. I don't I don't remember if it was Strauss, but I feel like it was Strauss. That sounds like something that Strauss would do. Yeah. That that's that's like my kind of humor right there. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> That sounds like something Strauss would do. <laughs> yeah, but but I, I yeah I, I do think that um there's there's a great tendency to to want to yeah immediately discredit anyone from the past that has some sort of slightly colorful history to their mm-hmm. life, you know, and and I, I think that's I think that's that's a that's a concern for me in the sense that no matter what we look back on anyone from 10 years ago and we're like, Oh, that's kind of a questionable thing right there. Right. People, you know, that's part of the human condition is being, uh, uh, what's the word, uh, fallible. Right. Mm, fallible. Yeah. That makes sense. You know, like, and, and you can look back on any, especially when you look back decades ago or centuries ago, Yeah. like the morals of that time are not the morals of 2022. Like, right. right. You know? <laughs> Well, that's that's another thing. It's just uh, you bring up a, a interesting topic that I've had with several of my other musicology uh, musicological friends, um, and it was a debate that in the same class that we have had, um, where we 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 talked about in one specific case, we said um, should we allow Mozart's The Magic Flute to be continued. Uh, to be performed on stages because of one line in the middle of the opera where Manastatos says out loud that Pamina will never love him because white is good and black is bad. Mm. And Manastatos is a Moor, so he... It has a darker complexion. So because he has a darker complexion, then she will never love him because of that. And so the the argument was presented, do we allow this opera to be performed? And the conclusion, uh, and and the, the, the debate continued on with, do we allow, uh, people to continue to perform operas like Porgy and Bess and Trimonisha. Um, and the debate stemmed to a recent production that was done in Germany where Porgy and Bess was performed by an all-white cast and in multiple different things uh, surrounding um, that particular topic. But the the debate ultimately came to the question of do we allow these types of things to continue to be performed and as as a historian i always want to be like yes it's a part of history and then the other side of me the progressive side of me says i think we should 
not perform these things, which then always melds together to my, my, the answer that I give every time is yes, we should perform these things because you shouldn't erase history. We have to learn from history. Um, in order to be able to progress, we have to know what people have done and we have to be able to come to the conclusion that what they did was bad so that we know what's good. So to erase something that is bad in itself will stunt us from, from growing because then we will only continue to go back to make the same mistake because um, knowledge is power. So if we know that, um, I, and when, when Mozart wrote that particular moment of the opera, he himself was already reflecting on the, the problems uh, of the society he was living in. And that's something that we have to also take into consideration because Mozart himself was a very forward-thinking person. Um, a, a lot of things that he wrote was in jest of, of the politics at the time and, and specific societal ideas. Um, but people think, oh, this was... And and that was yet another reason. I mean, the the Nozze di Figaro is literally... A, a, a joke um as a, as a four hour long joke uh at at the aristocracy of the time um so we can't we can't take so much of it going back to some things that i said before is I mean, yes these were also ideas of the past and sometimes art is designed to to show something and so to get rid of it will also get rid of its purpose as well to get rid of to get rid of um the you know, figaro will defeat the the purpose that it was trying to tell us that uh aristocracy it, the, the the way that this particular aristocracy was being run doesn't work so you have to you have to be able to, to to keep these kinds of things and able to move forward yeah so you're mentioning the the, the perspective of the time you mm -hmm. like uh the what the opera itself was actually commenting on mm -hmm. you know um and like it, it seems to me like what you're explaining i don't know much about the magic flute honestly but it seems to me that you're, you are you, are you explaining it in a way where like for that time it was it was progressive in a way yeah or... yeah i mean of course mozart had his own things that he plugged into the magic flute and with the the, the freemasons and and whatnot and and the promotion of the freemasons but um it, it, with the uh, the magic flute being an example uh, of of, of racism specifically um do we get rid of do we get rid of uh the magic flute and do we stop letting it being performed in uh in, in opera houses across the world because of one line right. um that that hints towards racism um but uh the marriage of figaro more specifically is the whole entire opera is designed to give a message mm -hmm. um 
more beyond beyond what the subject beyond itself as the story as the music the opera was created as a political cartoon uh, it, 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 to put it into into more modern modern terms um so sometimes sometimes that's sometimes art that seems controversial is created that way to make the point um and then sometimes the 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 art that was made is simply reflecting on on something that was happening and then there are certainly cases where the art is is itself problematic but in all three of those cases getting rid of them would only make things worse only uh, it would not allow us to see what was a problem whatever whatever problem they whether it was purposely addressed or it was just a problem in itself mm -hmm. um so so yeah so we're talking about censorship here then yeah right and mm -hmm. um yeah, I'm. I, I am not a fan of censorship, especially with art, mm -hmm. like what you're saying. Even when it's problematic or controversial and stuff, because um, my my one thought is if, let's say like this example with the magic flute, people who are saying, oh, it shouldn't be performed because it has this one line, and we yeah. need to we need to protect whoever for right. you know, that that it might be targeting or something. Um, then what if we were to flip the script where that person wrote an opera and it offended someone else of the opposite ideological perspective. Right. right. And they said it should be, that should be censored. Right. Like, I don't think they'd be comfortable with that. Right. And I'm right. not, I'm not saying that what was happening right. in that line is like acceptable or whatever. I'm not making a comment on that. I'm just making a broader comment on the idea of censorship and, and the, the question being that who gets to decide what should be censored. Right. I think I think that's an important question because um uh if that power if if you're if you're okay with censorship coming from your perspective, if that then gets shifted to the other perspective that you're not so yeah. fond of, I right. don't think you'd be very happy. You know? Right. Right. Exactly. Um, Unless your art is physically hurting something in the moment. Like mm. if you are if your art, your art, because uh, I, I know like there are shows where um like cop shows where the where the murder will say this is my art like that's that no that's not art that's murder mm -hmm. like there 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 are there are lines there are lines but in 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 these cases where we're looking at something from a historical standpoint that um, has a potential to be offensive to somebody mm -hmm. um, that has the potential to portray a, a certain uh race or or um or ethnicity or whatever in a certain light then you can you absolutely should not erase that because it will it will only stunt the growth that we've been trying to make right right yeah i mean the the go-to example in these sort of situations is 1984 and mm -hmm. and like in that book um you know 
like in that society, they're they're constantly rewriting history where mm-hmm. the events that took place the day before are now the next day are rewritten entirely to reflect the opposite thing that happened. You right. know, it's like it's like on Tuesday, it's like, oh, we bombed China. And then on Wednesday, it's like, oh no, we're great friends with China. It's so cool. You know, like yeah. it's like yeah. history is suddenly uh erased. Uh our, and like you're talking about the knowledge of mm-hmm. uh you know being able to grow. Right. And, and there's like there's some disorientation in that, you know? Mm-hmm. It, it's like, wait, 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 didn't didn't this thing just happen? Right. Like I just saw it, you know. Right. And then you have like cognitive dissonance happening that right. you, you you can't even um uh yeah like the disorientation the cognitive dissonance it's like mm-hmm. it's it's some serious fuckery of the brain yeah 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 it's it's a challenging it's a challenging uh conversation I mean well the um <clears throat> I recently had a composer on Beata Moon who um she had she had issues getting the vaccine. Mm-hmm. um like health issues and so she uh she got one shot and then didn't get the second because of concern of tinnitus and so mm-hmm. as a composer you know having ringing in your ear as a musician having ringing in your ear constantly is not a good thing um right and so she had um a uh, a feature in an npr radio show she was mm-hmm. featured on an npr radio show talking about her experience and how it's affecting her career because of certain vaccine mandates and stuff and and she can't satisfy that and um and and in the in the conversation we had one of the things we we wanted to make it clear to everyone was like or we we were really trying to send the message that um to try to be a little bit more open-minded and and not so like you know like sort of what that guy when you debated him he saw strauss worked for the nazis Mm-hmm. that's all he needed to read. And he, he, re, he reacted, he, he walked away and then that was the whole thing he got. Right. And so like, you know, you read a headline about on some article or you read something about a specific person. And if that's all you're going to walk away from, right. That's like the, right. what, what is that? A straw man, right. That's straw manning yeah. mm-hmm. a position or something. Um, you're, you're sort of re- removing the humanity of that person. Right. You know, and, uh, and so, yeah, we were calling for that. We were calling for people to be more charitable with how they interpret things and um, in, in these sort of instances, right? Like looking back on films or, or music or stories and stuff that of today is questionable, but um, mm-hmm. serve an important historical uh, significance. And, and still even at that, <clears throat> like, let's not forget the magic flute has music in it. Right, like, <laughs> like the 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 melodic lines, the harmonies, the orchestration, the uh, right. like all that is a part of it, right? You know, and we're musicians, so like, like yeah, the social and political commentary and the situation, all that stuff is a part of it. Music is a social act, but we're in it because of what music does for us, right? You know, so like, let's not forget that. <laughs> Right, exactly. Yeah, it's so important. I mean, there the argument then continued on to well, do we um, do we rewrite the words? Because the 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 Met, the Met Opera in New York, does um, when they do the when they do the Magic Flute at Christmas time, and it's specifically geared towards children. They re- they rewrite the words um, to fit um, 
to fit a, a more uh, appropriate audience. Um, and that they only do that when they do the English version, because of course, when they do the German version, most people aren't going to understand that anyway, especially children, um, unless the child speaks German. Um, but even the 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 argument continued. Do we do we do that as well? Do we uh, rewrite the lyrics? Um, and the the answer in my mind is still no, because you're still censoring it. Mm -hmm. uh, it's still censored whether you perform the um uh sorry <laughs> whether you perform it in it's uh when you get rid of it in its entirety or you change the the bad parts you're still getting rid of the 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 thing that we should be learning from it absolutely yeah yeah totally that's a that's a really good point and it's it's i'm glad you mentioned the english version because <laughs> like please humor me here. I'm not like, I don't know a lot of opera. I haven't really been to opera. I didn't know that it was performed outside of the German language. <laughs> yeah. And if, as far as um, Mozart operas go, the Magic Flute is certainly the most per, uh, performed opera in, in English um, because it, it only really does have that one problematic thing about it. Um, and it's, it's easy for children. Like if you're, if you're trying to get a child into opera, the magic flute is absolutely the way to go. It's a fantastical story. It's got witches and villains and, and heroes and dragons and, and all those kinds of things. So you, the magic flute becomes a, a huge gateway into, uh, into the world of opera, especially for, for a younger audience. And, um, so I have personally performed the magic flute in English. I, I performed one of the, I actually performed multiple parts because I was, um, my, uh, they wanted to utilize as few people as they possibly could. So they gave multiple people multiple parts. Um, but uh, I've performed that in English. Um, it's one of the very few operas I've ever performed in English. Um but um, I have yet to, to hear a production of like the Marriage of Figaro in English or um, Don Giovanni in English. Uh, but um, yeah, sometimes I mean, it's it, as much as it takes away from experiencing the art as intended. Sometimes in performing these things in in the English language and translating them is is certainly important to try and get people interested in it um like i know the philadelphia uh, opera philadelphia here um performed prokofiev's a love for three oranges in english um a year and a half ago um the opera was written in russian um with an alternative french version as well uh, prokofiev wrote it wrote the opera in both languages um, because he believed that um, the people of Chicago uh, during the time that the piece was written were not going to favorably look upon his opera if it was sung in Russian. So he provided a French version as well. Um, but then later on, an English version was, was provided because it was such a popular opera that he wanted to 
even take it even further and, and allow allow English people to to uh, people who only spoke English and to give them that chance to to experience it even further. Um, so ten, it, it, that's something that tends to happen a lot, especially within opera. Um, I don't know too many musical theater pieces that are specifically in other languages. Um, but I, within opera, they do do a lot of in English translations um, or, or just vernacular translations of, of the opera in order to um, to get more people in the seats. Um, this is and, really interesting. And to to sit down and and uh, enjoy the the performance even more than if they were to go into um, into the, the hall and only be able to experience the, um, the just experience the music and the acting. I had a friend that I took to see um, Lucia de Lammermoor uh, a few years ago. And I, I told, I told them when we were going in, um, Lucia de Lammermoor, just, just, because they're going to be singing in Italian and I know you don't speak Italian and we're going to be sitting in seats because I'm very poor or at the time I, I was very poor. So I bought 30, the $30 seats, which were both obstructive view and had no view of the super titles. Uh. I had bought the seat for myself thinking I'm, I'm the only one going to this. I don't really need to see the super titles. Um, so I had bought the $30 seat thinking I, I know this opera well enough to be able to just go to it, experience this particular performance and walk away from it without worrying about anything. But the person that was sitting next to me had never seen it before. This is the first opera ever. And so going into it, all I had to simply say to him was this Think of this as as a Romeo and Juliet story. I will only tell you that and allow you to experience it the only way you 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 know how to experience it. And he walked out of the opera saying, "If you didn't tell me that this was a kind of Romeo and Juliet story, which Lucia Lamamore is nowhere near Romeo and Juliet, but if you didn't tell me that, then I probably would not have enjoyed it at all because I don't speak Italian." Um, so those kinds of moments are important. Um, like having a, a translation of an opera that is done and performing an opera in a specific language um, allows for more growth within your company. Um, I, I think that doing every single performance you do in English is not that great because then you also... Um, then you go in the opposite direction where you make the people who are sitting in your audience feel like they, like, like myself, if I were to go to an op that, that, that whole entire opera season where everything was in English and I would probably be like, me as a historian wishes that you would have done it the original way. Mm -hmm. um, and I, I feel like you're just catering to one specific group of people. Um, which I sound like an absolute snob right now at the moment, but uh, I, I, I enjoy the, the performances being done in the, in the original language, because to me, to me, 
that is looking even closer into the world of of the composer or the or whoever is performing um uh so yeah I, I, i'm with you man i mean all these languages are so different and 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 the, the composers <laughs> are writing the notes in the range that they're written in to to like in in concert with the language right like so by by shifting it to english then mm. you're you're probably missing like certain timbral aspects of what the melody yeah. should be or or like the certain punch i mean i have no doubt that when they arrange it and or you know when they rewrite it and stuff well i don't know i hope they put that into consideration if they don't like <laughs> you know a good a good uh, translator will do that i mean exactly to your point if somebody were to perform a Janacek opera in English, it would completely disrupt everything that Janacek had put into it because Janacek thought about the Czech language. He based every single melodic line or every single musical moment off of the rhythm and how the Czech language is spoken. So in those particular moments where you perform, yes, if you were to perform a Janacek opera, I mean, I'm pretty sure that the cunning, um, the cunning vixen has been performed in, in English. But I mean, it, it, performing performing any of his operas, uh, in, like, it just completely gets rid of everything that he was trying to do, and and it disrupts it. Even to the performers, it it will disrupt something because then it doesn't feel as natural because it wasn't intended to, to be that way um i if, because i work in an opera school i have it's so even a perfect example last season we were performing um donatzati's la favorite and that opera was written in French first, although Donizetti was an Italian composer and 90% of everything that he wrote was in the Italian language, he happened to write this one opera in French. Mm -hmm. And he, because he was somebody that wasn't necessarily well versed in the French language, he made himself more susceptible to understanding the French language. And so the opera then transformed from from the French language more um, because he was doing his best to understand the French language on top of it. And multiple different opera companies around the world will perform this opera in the Italian language because there is that option. And more, more a lot of people will say, well, it's Donizetti, so you can't perform Donizetti in any other language other than Italian because that's pretty much everything that he did. And I, there was a, one of our resident artists came out to me one day, we were just having a conversation and, and they were mentioning that they have done an aria from this opera before for one of their competitions or one of their, their auditions. And they mentioned that singing it in the French version is so much better. If it, it flows better with how the, the, the melodies were created, it, it, 
it just makes more sense uh, mm. for them musically rather than when they were trying to prepare it for an audition or competition in the Italian version, because the Italian version, the Italian language doesn't mesh with the, the French in this specific way that Donatelli wrote the music. So while yes, it's important for to get audiences in the in the seats and for them to be able to take away something by doing an English version or an, a vernacular version of the opera, it doesn't always bode well for everybody because the people who are there who are more invested will notice that the musicians aren't performing their best or the opera isn't being performed its best um, because it is disrupted in some way. It makes so much sense what you're saying. I mean, it, it kind of connects back to what we're talking about with censorship in a way, because mm -hmm. because I would imagine that any musicologist or something, if you're if like whoever's writing the program notes or something, if they're mm -hmm. talking about this opera, that uh, Donizetti had written as an Italian mm -hmm. using French, he doesn't know the French tendencies as well. So there's going to be an interesting diff or different way that he uses it, right. which, which would make the music, oh, this is kind of fascinating, you know? Mm -hmm. Like when you have someone not of that specific culture using those cultural, whatever you want to call it, mm -hmm. like... It, it can be a new sort of way of doing it. Not that it has to be that way, but like the point I'm making is that um, I can imagine someone being like, this isn't the right way to do it in French. This is how you should do it. And then trying to correct it. Right. But, but he could have been presenting a whole very interesting way of, of like how, how the French language could be performed if one were to choose to do that. Right. And, and, and like, I'm a composer. So like, I think like, this this is this is why I have such an issue with stuff like oh we need to change the language that's used in this opera because of the people is like when I'm composing I'm thinking a lot about like how every sound is made you know yeah. like the last piece I wrote for voice a few years ago um, there's a long sustained the the singer at one point sustains the word no for a while mm. like just the oh for a while. If mm -hmm. it was in German, it would be I, like, mm -hmm. nigh, you know, like, I don't, like, the the warmth and open sound of an O versus the closed nasal I sound, mm -hmm. it would completely, it, it's, if I heard that in that moment, in for the piece I wrote, I'd be like, no, 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 don't do that. <laughs> like, yeah, this is not, this is not the, the, the character this is not the mood this is not the timbre that right this section of the piece is is needing you right. know and so like hearing that um, i'm like i'm like you know but that was again that's the composer side of me right yeah. like <laughs> yeah yeah <laughs> um yeah it's it's interesting though i like going back to prokofiev and tchaikovsky is there something like do 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 Russian composers speak many languages, or 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 was it just like the time that's like composers they were traveling the world, so they were speaking a lot, you know, like yeah, um, this is a topic that I've done a lot of research on. Uh, so this this also ties into my own personal career as well. 
Russians who were trying to make themselves more Russians they weren't always very proud of their 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 culture. There was a period of time where the Russians were were trying to to adapt different cultures into their own and for a long period of time Russia became very French. Um and so when like a composer like Tchaikovsky was born, he was pretty much f- forced, not not forced, but it was expected that he were to be multilingual, at least in at least besides Russian, to also understand the French language. Um, French was at the time of Tchaikovsky's life the the universal language like english is today uh at that point if you wanted to do any kind of business you did it in french because that was the language that everybody spoke unless you were in america because people in america still were pretty much like we speak english um uh there but for the most of europe if you were to do business you were to do it in the french language so everybody grew up including other countries you grew up speaking your your primary language and then you also spoke french um tchaikovsky went even further and he studied german and then he studied english and he studied italian english was the last one that he went to but um tchaikovsky by the end of his life knew how to speak russian french italian german and english so he spoke five different languages um which makes remember when i said there that tchaikovsky website has there's a website dedicated to just his letters and the multiple translators that are needed to work on it because he wrote in all of those languages sometimes even in the same letter he would write in like three different languages um just because the other person also spoke in those languages um but even going in later uh like like prokofiev and um even stravinsky um that it was if you wanted to be able to do if you wanted to be a composer being in russia was not the great like you you couldn't do it in russia if you wanted to become an international composer, if you wanted to really take your your career off the ground, being in Russia was only going to to not hinder. It would stagnate your career. You would be one thing all the time. And people like Tchaikovsky, Prokofiev, Stravinsky, um, even Scriabin and Rachmaninoff. Um, I mean, Rachmaninoff was more, was late enough where he went from from the Soviet Union to America. Um, but Stravinsky found found success in in Paris with the Ballet Russe. Um, Prokofiev found the same success because of the same people. And then he also found success in America. So then he had to do, he ended up to go and speak that language as well. And we here in, in, in America, we, we tend, at least nowadays, tend to forget that there are other places to do business and other places that, that we can take our careers. But nowadays, English is so universal that 
most people are like, well, I can speak English anywhere and anybody would know what I'm saying. Um, but at that time, if you wanted to do business, you needed to speak the language of the business that you were going to be doing it in. Um, Germans were a little bit more tight. Um, they were kind of within their own world a little bit. Um, but anybody coming from outside into Germany was expected to speak German, which is why somebody like Tchaikovsky also learned how to speak German because he wanted to be able to go to Germany and have his pieces performed there. Um, just so how it, I, I mentioned how this tied in my own career is when I was going to get my master's degree, um, I knew that I wanted to study Russian music. Russians, um, the Russians were my, my, they still are like my primary, my primary focus. Um, but I was running into the problem where Russian, the Russian language is also changing, like from Tchaikovsky to like to Stravinsky, the language had already changed. Mm -hmm. uh, the, the Russian language went from this old style to the, the style that we know today. So I had gone into, I went in learning Russian. I went into, uh, I went into my program having started learning the Russian language. And I quickly realized that I was studying the wrong Russian for what I wanted to do. I was, I was studying the Russian of composers today, which would pretty much stop me at Stravinsky and, and probably even just a little bit earlier. Um, but if I wanted to, to study composers like, like Tchaikovsky, like Grimsky Korsakov, like, like Balakirev or Cesar Kui, uh, like any of those, then I would, then I'm already out of luck. I started learning the wrong, the wrong Russian um, because they spoke old Russian, uh, which is not really that far off, but it's far enough off where I felt that I was going to fail my Russian exam the minute that I started taking it. Um, so I ended up switching to French because all Russian composers spoke French as well. Uh, <laughs> Because they were expected to, and a lot of times they wrote in French as well, especially people like Stravinsky, um, like Prokofiev, because their their careers started in Paris, um, and they were they corresponded with people in French. They um, most of the that that's why like the um stravinsky's first few ballets are in the in the french language mm -hmm. i mean it petrushka but like de the the firebird or um de Pantin, like the right of spring we, we we we've english we've added the english to them but he wrote them with the french titles because he was in paris and that's how they that's how they operated um so long way around they spoke those languages because if they didn't their careers 
would have pretty much been stuck to Russia, which at that point was already very limited. It's interesting to think about this from a business perspective, because that's all marketing. Yeah. You know, like positioning yourself in a way to make you most marketable. Yeah. And it's not just music. It was the reason why somebody like Tchaikovsky went and started learning French as a child was because he was expected to, his family was expected to go into, uh, to be a civil servant. He, Tchaikovsky did not start off his career as a, as a composer. He went in and he went to the school of jurisprudence and he was a civil servant for several years by, by, composition standards Tchaikovsky started late mm -hmm. and so to the, just to make my point the, the Tchaikovsky speaking French had nothing to do with just being a musician it had everything to do with being marketable with being able to have a conversation with anybody to to further whatever he was doing um, and make himself and his job better well it, it's so interesting to hear this man i i feel like just looking at tchaikovsky i could hear him speaking all those languages i know <laughs> like, like that iconic photo of him in the black suit or whatever mm -hmm. and, and it's just his white beard his white hair um mm -hmm. or i guess painting not a photo but uh yeah yeah <sighs> there there are entries in tchaikovsky's diary um that go back and forth between Russian and French. And there's one particular entry in his diary that I find incredibly humorous. Um, he had taken a trip to, I believe it was in Italy, um, to, to compose his opera, The Queen of Spades. Um, and he had uh, one of his servants along with him to help him when so he, so he could have somebody there to bring him lunch as he was working and and everything and he brought his diary with him and his entry for one of the nights that he was working on his opera he he confessed something very personal about himself and in the next sentence after that because the, the diary that i have um goes back and forth between it's written in Russian and then it's written in French whenever he wrote the French he so it was written how he would have written it um in the entry he says I'm writing this in French so that whoever was his servant cannot read this and snoop on me so um he knew that his servant didn't speak French um, and he was able to write in multiple languages. And he, he did that frequently. He did that, he would write in German in certain parts of his diary so that nobody else could, but him could ever read it. Um, but uh, it, it's, one of, it's one of the things that I, I always find, he, he spoke so many languages and I'm like, if only, if only I could learn another one. I mean, I, I, I feel like I dabble in several other languages just because I, I, I do it for my own research. But to be able to not only understand it, but to fluently speak five different languages and understand and have 
a conversation with it, it's it just baffles my mind it's incredible it, it baffles my mind too i i would love to be bilingual just bilingual i would love to be bilingual like give me another just one more language i'd be psyched like yeah. five yeah i don't know if i even know anyone that speaks more than two languages yeah or, I, had a, or, I had a cousin who spoke English, French, and and Spanish, but that was the most that I ever knew somebody speaking multiple languages. Yeah, it definitely makes sense with the Romance languages because there there's some overlap in many ways. Yeah. And, but I mean the um, the thing with French that I've never learned French, but like the amount of tongue action that happens mm-hmm. in the French language, yeah, I like I like I don't know if I can uh, I don't know if I can handle it. <laughs> there's like so many like uh, sounds and like um, yeah it's so funny because um our last episode of um culture but not really um my fiance did his episode on um Hobe and Sonia Delaunay mm-hmm. and um most of the episode he kept looking at me saying did I pronounce did I pronounce that right because he would <laughs> he would attempt to do he would attempt to say these these French things in French and <laughs> it's just like I could see it, it's hard it, it, like it's, like the English language the way we form words is nowhere close to how the French form words. Um, there's there's missing letters. Um, there's letters that don't make any sounds. Um, sometimes a letter, sometimes a, a, a word that has an S on the end sounds exact same way as if it would have without the S at the end. Mm-hmm. Like if you're trying to make something plural or um, or singular, you just add an S at the end to make it plural, mm-hmm. and you still don't pronounce it, even though it has the S on it when you read it. Um, <laughs> so, um, <laughs> that's funny, man. That confuses. That's. I mean, it's like we do that too, right? Because we have letters that are silent, like knife. The K is yeah. silent. You know. Yeah. Yeah. I, I yeah I I took Italian in college. Um, I could. I could like comfortably sound out words. <laughs> yeah. I can't speak the language. Like I, I, I don't know. I couldn't sit here and, and say a full sentence. Uh, I could gather words as people say them. I'll be like, Oh, they just said good. You know, like, but like, I, yeah. I understand that like CH in Italian is the hard K sounds. Mm-hmm. CI is the chi sounds, mm-hmm. like, you know, like stuff like that. That's what I gather. <laughs> Um, yeah. which is, which is less than elementary. <laughs> right. Um, I think we, we've had such a vast, varied conversation of, of all kinds of topics and stuff. And we, we haven't talked very much about what you do. <laughs> That's okay. I mean, I feel like I've been, I think everything that I've talked about pretty much sums up what I do. <laughs> Let, let's let's do can we have like a brief sort of uh mm-hmm. chat about that and then and then we can we can we can call it a day yeah 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 um you more specifically referring to composer chronicles uh, uh, sort of the umbrella of everything that you do because you 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 have a whole like media company and stuff that you run yeah yeah yeah, yeah. and yeah. um uh yeah if you can if you can tell us a little bit about that like all, all of that stuff honestly and 
in yeah. whatever way you want to if you want to be really fleshed out if you want to be like i'm tired dude look it's just this like <laughs> i'll 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 try to sum summarize it as best as i can um so when like i said when i was um when i was graduating from my undergrad i'm uh, my undergrad when i was graduating from temple i didn't want to pursue teaching um although I, sometimes i i I wonder if I should. Uh, but I wanted to figure out a way to be able to continue to be uh, a musicologist uh, in my own way. So I didn't really find that opportunity until we had our first lockdown um, from from COVID. And I was sitting at home. And I had started writing my first book and I was like, I, actually, I should preface it. I, when I graduated, uh, I had started a, a, a blog and I was just doing a classical music blog and I felt like it wasn't really going anywhere. I felt like I couldn't really portray what I wanted in a blog. Um, and so then... I had started writing my first book and again, I was, I, I felt like I just wasn't the, what my intention and what I was trying to get across wasn't working. I am somebody who loves storytelling and everything that I, everything that I write, I always want it to be. And it, the, I, cause you, you, I've talked about opera a lot today. I, I love dramatics, especially when it comes to, to, to writing and, and, and the creation of things. Uh, so I was trying to figure out a way that I would be able to blend my love of literature and my love of music history. And I had been told multiple times that I should start a podcast. Um, I loved listening to podcasts and I was always talking about like what my favorite episode was. And, um, and I was listening to podcasts like lore and um, uh, myths and legends and all these storytelling podcasts. And I was like, God, I would love to be able to do something like this. I just don't know how I could do it. Um, but I don't want to really start like another myth or legend podcast because I feel like everybody and their mother has a myths and legends podcast right now. Um, so how do I do that for, for music? How do I do that for music history? Um, and so I took, it wasn't until the lockdown hit where I started to really sit there because I had the time um, to sit there and figure out what, what can I do? Why isn't my blog working? What can I do to make it better? And how do I start doing the, the audio versions of this? So um, I sat down and I wrote a script and I did the one topic that I knew that I would nail. And that was to write a kind of story version of uh, of the the life of Tchaikovsky during the time of writing his opera Eugene Onegin, and 
that was my first episode. I wrote that script. I recorded it. And I was like, this is how, this is what I'm going to do. This is how I'm going to promote my career. This is how I'm going to further my career and this is how I'm going to do it the way I want to do it. Um, and this is, that. that's what really then started to formulate the, the, the mission that I've always, that I knew was always there, but I needed the Composer Chronicles to begin in order to put it down and be able to express it, which was classic, quote unquote, classical music is not as scary as you think it is. Uh, music of yesterday has had more of an impact on our current music than you may think. And it wasn't until I was rounding about 14 episodes in where I actually had the first live guest on my show. And I was hesitant to have a guest on my show because I was like, oh, I, 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 I want to stick with the history. I, I think if I continue with the history, then I will... I'll, I'll grow that way. I don't want to, I don't want to become anything too, I don't want to become anything more than I'm just a historical musicologist. And the day that I had the interview, everything changed. That was when I realized, realized the mission that I'd always wanted and which was to not only understand the music of the past, but to also use the music of today to help people to understand that. But even more than that, to provide a platform for living composers to share their own stories. Because I feel like so many times that a composer sits down for an interview it's because they're talking about a specific piece of music that they wrote. It's, it's talking about the time that they, they took to write that specific piece or focusing on one particular aspect of their career. But how does a composer become a composer? Yes, we have all of these, all these people in, in our history that wrote music. We have thousands upon thousands of people who wrote music and over thousands of years but how we don't we can't hear it from their lips anymore we can't hear we can't hear beethoven say the moment that i realized that music was the thing that i wanted to go into was this so that was really why i continued after that first episode where uh, the, the composer I featured was Andrew Gavin. For some reason, I one day I was just like, I'm gonna find a composer. I just searched, I just searched composer into the search bar of Instagram. And I clicked on the first person that came up on that list. And he was the first one. And I reached out and I said, Hey, I'm attempting to do something new with my podcast, and I would like you to to help me try and figure this out. Um, and since then he has become a very good friend of mine. I think he's been on, 
he's had two episodes that he's been on and he's been on a third he has composed the music to my patreon only podcast and it's like it's he and i became really good friends because he was the one person that helped me to realize a lot of things but in the same vein i feel like every time that i have an episode a guest on my episode that person becomes the next great friend that i have uh and i mean there, there are certain cases and i will not name any names um i have had some some terrible episodes not terrible episodes and terrible interviews that i've that i've had that i i am not not happy that they still exist um but the episodes i mean not the person the episode <laughs> still exists um <laughs> um I wish that I wish that the episode would somehow fall into into the deep dark pits of the internet and no one would ever see it but somehow people keep going back to them and uh I so to to really kind of focus back in every the composer chronicles was more than has become more than just the vehicle that provided me with the idea that this is uh it's been become more than a vehicle for me to continue to pursue music history it has become a way for me to provide a community to not only the composers i feature past and present but to create a community for people who may be looking at comp composition as a career or may be super interested in music but not understand where it comes from or, or any, anything that surrounds music. Because if we can understand what somebody is thinking, then we can better understand the music that we listen to. And I don't just focus on classical quote-unquote classical composers i i have songwriters i have uh, video game composers film composers um composers who do other different forms of media because the tchaikovsky beethoven bach schubert schumann all those people have have had their impact on how we create music for film how we create music for video games um and and how composers who write for for the concert stage write their music um and music is one very very large idea yes there are certain subcategories and and uh genres but just and I hate to tie religion into it, but Adam and where would we, yes, Adam and Eve were, were the, the first people alive and were, were the first people created, but everything there's, there's always one point and it always stems and everything always come, always, everything has been influenced by the thing that came before it. And it's an ever-growing tree. There's always with the same, there, there, yes, there is one source, but 
there everything stems from that one source so screamo rock music and boss cantata in whatever key because he wrote in every single key they're not that far away from each other they're the they're both music um while we all have our opinions about the music that we like and whatnot it's still there and the other the other side is that a, a composer who writes for video games doesn't necessarily they 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 think similarly to somebody who's writing for the concert stage sometimes and that's important to know because we if you if you are somebody who is interested in writing for the concert stage or for a film um then you know that there's multiple avenues you know that um you you know how somebody's who how somebody thinks uh and you're able to apply that to yourself and i feel like i'm jumping all over the place but that's how it feels a lot of times because it feels like this one podcast has so many practice has so many reasons to continue to go on it it gives it gives living composers the chance to promote themselves it promotes classical music classical music i don't i don't like using the word classical music um it gives historical music a chance to be seen in a way that doesn't seem so scary and it gives people who are looking at music a chance to to say oh it's not all that different uh yes this this is i love john powell's score for uh how to train your dragon but it wasn't created so differently than than beethoven's ninth symphony there were still those ideas kind of ringing around in in each of those composers heads uh so it doesn't make beethoven's ninth symphony that much scarier anymore because i know that they had they felt this way about it or they had this process or that the composer was that like going back to tchaikovsky that that composer was going through the shittiest time of their life while creating one of the biggest pieces of music that ever came out of their pen and it, it it's it's moments like that where there's more there's more to composers than just what they produce there's a reason they produce it uh and every single composer has a reason it's not just because uh, yes yes a, a composer may say I, I i wrote this because it was it was a commission and i just took it for the money but for for pieces like Eugene Onegin, there is a reason. There's a reason that they wrote it, and if you can understand that reason, then you might just appreciate it a whole lot more. Um, 
and you'll be able to apply that to any to not if you are a composer or listening to my podcast and you find because i've had this i've i've had composers listen to my podcast and and have heard a historical episode and say to me i didn't know that shostakovich wrote his 14th symphony while the 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 city of leningrad was falling around him it was literally under bombing as the performance was going on uh and he wrote th that symphony to keep people off the battlefield to prevent them from dying it, and it, it gives th that person that composer the the I, I understanding that they're the yeah they're that person's com composition was fantastic it's a composition that i look towards as as a, a source of inspiration but it was it was a rough time for them and i i may be going through a rough time and i may be stuck with trying to figure out what to do with my music and it's just it makes that all the more important what I love about everything you just said, well, first of all, I want to say is I've already, I've experienced your podcast. I've listened to a few episodes. I, I've, mm -hmm. I've recently been on your podcast and, and you just sold me on your podcast. <laughs> <laughs> like, I'm like, oh, I'm like, oh my God, I got to experience this. <laughs> yeah. Um, I got to do something with this lamp. I keep knocking into it. Um, but the other thing I, 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 I'm hearing is like, going back <laughs> i feel like this whole conversation we're having is based off of the one question that i asked in the beginning which was um uh the music you know being a musicologist question <laughs> but yeah. um i'm, I'm like kind of going back to that and, and like i'm hearing you talk about what the podcast is and and why you're doing it and all this other stuff and like it's like the track that you saw for becoming a musicologist wasn't the track that you wanted exactly but you still right. wanted to do like you still want to teach people it maybe not in a class yeah. setting though so it's like yeah i want right. to teach but not in this way yeah and and then same thing with with publications like because you said you you've, you've written a book mm -hmm. or several mm -hmm. books or you know you write a blog yeah. and so it's like yeah i i want to be writing stuff but not in this way and yeah you know not not under whatever you know um I, I don't know how it works as a musicologist to with with contracts or all the other stuff and, and you know but and and so like you've you've like forged this really awesome career as a musicologist out of your own like desires and and needs for what you you require of your own your own yeah. career and it's not it's not what you it's not what you saw in the university that's not right. that's not what your career you know entailed right so it, it that's that's what i'm kind of hearing like, like hearing you say all that i'm like it's so cool to to see how how you've you've taken this thing that you're like i don't know and then you've turned it into something else which is still musicology yeah yeah it's still i i always people are like well talking to living composers isn't musicology and i'm like uh yes it is because these are the people that will make tomorrow's history mm -hmm. that it's in you, you have to it's it, just like i've i've said before in order to understand now you have to understand history 
But at the same time, in order to understand history, you also have to understand what's happening now. It, 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 it's not a one-way street. It, it works both ways. And that's... Well, I did, well, the Composer Chronicles didn't start that way. That is what it, is, is what it has become, mm -hmm. is to prove that time isn't just one direction. It's it goes both ways not literal time like but just <laughs> the 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 con the concept of of cultures and and events that happen within time happen both ways right yeah exactly exactly yeah cuz like starting from the perspective of now the the question might be something like how did we get here right like you're looking at a situation where it's like oh shit my my office is flooding yeah why did that happen <laughs> so then you yeah. have to you have to sort of travel through the process of like well this is cracked here because the kitchen upstairs has too much whatever you know i'm not a fucking plumber i don't know shit. yeah but like no you know no. so it, yeah in a way you're archaeologically digging through the process of why you're in the position you're in now <laughs> right exactly it makes total sense man um it's yeah it's so it's such a cool you know the way you described it and uh the 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 way your podcast laid out because i i have uh firsthand experience is exact it's exactly like the questions you ask you know like it's it's beyond just what is this piece and yeah why did you write this piece it's like it's like what what led you to this point of like you suddenly decide you want to be a composer or you know yeah um and yeah you really you really kind of tease through that whole lineage and yeah. um and it's 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 a really i very thoroughly enjoyed our conversation on that and i'm i'm looking forward to seeing you know when it's published and stuff but uh um, yeah. yeah man it's it's a cool it's a cool podcast Thank you. Yeah. And I know you had mentioned Alexandrian Media. Um, Alexandrian Media came out of the Composer Chronicles. Um, I I was looking, I knew that I had written books and I had started this podcast and I knew that I wanted to do more uh, than, than what I was, that I was doing. Um, and Alexandrian Media stemmed after i had that interview with with andrew um because at that moment i realized that uh, actually even even a little bit further back there was a moment where that episode 14 the episode right before my first composer interview was the episode that i actually had the first it was the episode that i had originally composed theme music for the podcast um and there was there was a moment where i had this feeling of this can be a com this the composer chronicles is already itself a community but there could be more there's there, there's more i can grow a community even further and so having somebody else compose that theme music already then adds a level of of community 
and then I had somebody draw the illustrations uh, for for my my books. Um, they're just simple illustrations of the composers that I'm featuring, and then they become part of that community. Uh, and then I have somebody who designs the covers of my books, and then they become part of that community. And how do I continue to to grow that community while provide and and of course. Alexandria Media stemmed out of a very selfish kind of place where I was looking for a place for myself for, to host everything that I do without just simply saying my name. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I felt that by putting my name on it was only going to limit me in how I and and eventually taking. Uh, in in terms of taking my career even further because i i felt like um yes the composer chronicles by steven shigar with the music written by daryl banner um but how does daryl fit into this why daryl isn't mm, I don't want it to seem like Daryl is my employee at this point because he's, he's his own artist. So how do I do that? How do, how do I make somebody like Daryl or Andrew or Jonathan or Brian, how do I give them the chance to also become part of this community without it being centrally tied to me? Well, yes, I, I, am am the head of it and I run everything about it right now how do i give that person a chance to to also grow how do how do i allow them to say that they worked on a project without it being just immediately tied to another person i don't necessarily like the idea of being told well i i wrote the I I drew an illustration for Stephen Trigar. I I wrote an illustration that was published in a book by Alexander Media Publishing. I I felt that was a better way for me to continue with how I want my my career to grow. Um, I want people to feel like they have a community that they can be a part of without it being attached to, to my specific name. Um, and then that way people can, if, if once it starts going to the point where, where I have multiple podcasts that are associated with Alexandria Media, or I have multiple YouTube channels that are associated with Alexandria Media, then they can say that they're associated with that other channel podcast artist whatever without saying that it's my name and i i had created that that initial blog with my name on it and just listing it under my website and i think that was a a good starting point for me to realize oh uh, like this needs something this needs a place it needs it needs a, a community to 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 grow because we can't always just do things ourselves mm-hmm. um well we, while we can do our things ourselves because i i run 
the composer chronicles 100% myself i do all i record and write scripts and i edit the episodes and and i know that you do all the same thing for for uh your podcast as well but you you can't always do everything by yourself and eventually you're going to have to ask for help um eventually you're going to have to go to other people and that's what i'm doing I mean, I know my mother says, well, you should just compose your own music for your own things. And in my head, I'm like, yes, I could. But right now I don't have the resource to do that. And I know I can find other people who can do it better than I can. Um, yes, I know I learn things really quickly. I learned how to do video editing software in two weeks. I learned how to use the entire Adobe suite in, in a, a month. And yes i know i can do that but i know that there are other people who can one help me so i don't drive myself into the ground and two there are people who focus on this and can make it better than i can um so alexandria media became that place um and while alexandria media at the current moment still continues to only host all of my own things um it is a place that I know that I want it. I want people to feel like they can they can come to to it and feel like they have a place to to grow their their culture uh, and uh, and so on. <laughs> You're definitely laying such a really like a really great blueprint for anyone else who might be interested in this sort of thing. Thank you. I mean, it's it's cool. It's so cool to hear about the, the fostering of the community and having this sort of like central area where everyone is sort of connected in some way. And so yeah. then that's the, the the camaraderie and and right. and like you know um, we're all sort of doing this thing independently, but also it you know right like. I, I don't know, like like together in a way, you know. Right, right. Um, that's it's a really great sort of like fault like vision, I guess. Not not vision, mm. but I don't know what you call that, like philosophy. I mean, yeah, I, th I think both words can work. <laughs> I think it's so comforting. That's what it yeah. sounds. You know, it's it's really comforting that, yeah. especially especially through everything like you mentioned, how the the podcast came about during the pan during the quarantine. Mm -hmm. you know when everyone felt disconnected yeah and um and then now it's turned into this thing where you're like well i let me start this media company and yeah. and 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 start it with the idea that we'll all have this thing that's the, our central connection and you know mm -hmm. um each person moves at their own pace in their own way right it's, it's right a, a great great resource you're providing totally yeah. Thank you. Yeah, man. So um, I think I think I've tapped I think I've tapped myself out there. <laughs> <laughs> it's, um, a, it's a long one. It's a yeah yeah. Um, I, I I'm I'm so psyched about the the way how our conversation started with your career and it's ended with your career. And in the middle, we just went through this whole we like talked about bread and everything. Yeah. <laughs> Very happy about the bread conversation. Yeah, yeah. Um, so before before we, we close off here, 
how can people reach you? What, um, what are your socials? Can, uh, what about your book? Is that for sale? Is there, mm-hmm. uh, you know, the podcast and all that, all that good stuff? Yeah. Yeah. So, um, the best place anybody can find everything that I do, um, including where all my socials are, are um, on alexandriamedia.org. That's the place, I mean, I have my contact on there and and everything, but um, pretty much uh, for me independently, if if anybody's interested in looking at what I do independently, um, all all of my socials, I'm pretty sure, all of them are just Stephen J. Trigar. I think I have switched him to just Stephen Trigar, but I don't think all of them are. Um, so either either of those two, and you'll see my weird smiling face with a fedora on my head um, sitting outside the Metropolitan Opera. If you're looking for for pretty much anything else, uh, everything is pretty much centralized on on um, AlexandriaMedia.org. Uh, and you can find all the socials to all my podcasts that I do, um, all the socials to, um, and, and where you can actually look to see where you can purchase my books. Um, there are ebook versions and physical versions, and not all of them are sold in the same places. So that's where you can, uh, and unfortunately, just the way that the distributor works is that all not all my books are sold in the same place. So if you want to buy, if you want to find where you can listen to my podcast and where you can find my books, alexandriamedia.org is absolutely the best place to find out where you can find everything. Fantastic. Yeah. Well, people head on over to uh, Alexandrian. It's Alexandrian with an N at the end, right? Yes. Alexandria. Uh, Yes. <laughs> Question myself for a minute. <laughs> yeah, head over to alexandriamedia.com. Dot org. Dot org. See, shows, shows where where I am right now. <laughs> oh, that's all right. It's been a long night. <laughs> um, Stephen, thank you so much, man. This has been a fantastic conversation. Uh, thank you. Thank you for imparting all of your musicological knowledge and, and perspective and <laughs> Uh, it's yeah, I, I appreciate your time and for being a part of the make a noise podcast. Thank you so much. I'm happy to be here. 